0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to be back with the legendary Lawrence Loritz. And so, without further ado, here he is again. I would love to start by asking you how the decision first came to veer into choreography.
1: You just seemed really natural to me. I've always had my own individual voice, and I, I always wanted to express that. So choreography and also choreographing on myself as well was just a natural yeah. uh, progression for me. I started choreographing. Gosh, when I was still in, at, at Harkness, I choreographed for one of the small opera companies here in New York City. It was called the New York Lyric Opera. They performed it was called the universalist church is on the central park west i think around 75th street and they did the opera pearl fishers and they asked me if i wanted to choreograph it. and it's kind of maybe the first thing i did in new york but i just always have yeah it's just instinctual i think
0: and could you say more about what your sort of unique style is that you were mentioned?
1: That's a really good question. I think I I really pay attention to the text, to the lyrics of the song. And if not directly, it gives me the inspiration of my own story in my head. If it's, you know, if it's just dancing and it doesn't have to like be part of a a musical where you're you're actually telling a story to move along the plot. If I'm just choreographing numbers. I just get inspired by the song and I create my own storyline and, and it's storytelling for me, I guess. I don't choreograph in an abstract way. It means something, even if it's just silly and fun. Like yeah. you saw you said you saw uh just watch jump. Yes, yes. And that that was during um I'm glad you brought that up because that was really a wonderful time in my life. I around I think it was eighty-three to eighty six. Um in the eighties they were doing a lot of thing, a lot of shows called Musical Industrials oh. where you you put on a big show and it was to sell a product. So it's basically a staged commercial in a yeah. sense. But with my mentality and coming from the ballet and everything, I never do anything small or think that way. So I did uh, two big ones in New York City and then we also did them across the country. But the first one was at the Hudson Theater. The second one was at Town Hall, and I directed and choreographed and and produced the shows. And the company, uh, Lily of France, which was a very high-class lingerie company, they were like elegant gowns, and Christian Dior hired me to pull this Mm -hmm. first show for New York Fashion Week. These were all shows. Well, uh, the Broadway ones were for New York Fashion Week. One was, I think, for for spring and one was for fall. They basically asked me to come up with a concept, which I did. I called both shows Broadway Showstoppers 1 and 2, like our podcast, 1 and 2. <laughs> and I had I heard friends of mine who were dancing on Broadway at the moment, and they all had uh, Broadway credits. Uh, Jerry Mitchell danced for me. Uh, Catherine Cooper, who had met right. Cassie in a chorus line, and they both remained dear friends. And I had Mercedes Ellington, Duke Ellington's granddaughter who's a terrific dancer and still a friend because we all had a blast doing it. It was so much fun. And in fact, Catherine Cooper was, uh, she doesn't live in the city anymore, but she was here like a year ago and she said, you know, from all the choreographers I've worked for, she says, it was the only time I ever had fun. She says, it's my best dancing memory. And I never even, you know, considered that someone would feel that way about it. And it was fantastic. But anyway, we did Broadway Showstoppers. We did 10 numbers. And these were buyers from around the country sitting in a Broadway theater. And they found out that they could basically produce a show for the same price that it costs them to run a full page ad in the new york times at the end of the show they sold something like five times as much stuff as they would have otherwise so they're thrilled so of course they ordered broadway show stoppers too and um i did it again at town hall and i had some of the same dancers and it's really like a gift to all of us you know we all really bonded and Lorraine Yarnell, um, who was my dance partner at the time in Canada at the Muni and was famous at the time from having her own show on television with Shields on Yar- Yarnell. Um, she came and did the audition with me and like all these New York dancers, their eyes are popping out of their head, you know, seeing this TV star giving, giving them the audition.
0: And so, what yeah. is it like for you to hold auditions as a choreographer, having been on the other side of
1: of the table? So I try to make it, you know, as fun, and I try to make each performer feel good about themselves, you know.
0: Yeah. And what do you look for? In-
1: well, every show's different. The the corporation who hired me, they basically were like modeling in a sense, as well as dancing. Um, I didn't do it. Uh, in a mulling type of way. There were full out Broadway dance numbers that I did. I had to keep in mind these girls should be like, you know, a little bit on the taller side and long legged and beautiful. And in fact, in the first show, they just wanted all girls. And I said, I can't <laughs> grab 10 Broadway dance numbers and have no men. So they allowed me to have. I think one one man per show. I had Jerry in the first one, and Ray Roderick in the second one, who was in Crazy for You on Broadway and has also became become a director and choreographer and a very nice person. And, but when a dancer comes into the room, into the room, I can generally tell if they're going to be good or not, the way that they carry it themselves. I don't know their energy. Like when I first see them, I have a sense of if they're going to be right for me.
0: Yeah, and so going back to Can Cam, which you mentioned a little bit, um, what uh, were you, what was it like to be returning to the Mummy after State Fair?
1: Uh, that was magical for me because um, first of all, I was grown up and had um, all this uh, success in the ballet and had made a name for <laughs> myself on. All my children which were you know taped in advance so while i was playing at the muni the cast members see me and all my ch- children that was like the hot show back then and everybody was so excited i mean it was thrilling and I, compared to like fiddler on the roof which was very political and you know you enjoyed doing the show but there's so many politics to deal with there were, it was a drag. Can Can was just one of those shows where it was pure joy. I could have just, I could have toured with that show afterwards for a year. Um, I loved Judy Kay. I loved John Reardon. Uh, John Shook was also in it, who played Daddy Warbucks for years on Broadway, and Annie, and and Lorene and I. And because they had two well-known dancers in the show they built a lot of the show around us. They really highlight, highlighted um, us in the show. And I remember the next morning uh, after we opened coming on stage and Judy Kay like yelled at me, you know, the Muni's huge, that stage, and she yelled, roll out, hey, Loritz. I said, oh, hi, Judy. And she said, did you see the reviews? You're a star in St. Louis. It never even occurred to me to look at reviews or right, that they're going to review I don't know. That's where my head was back then. I didn't care about any of that stuff at all. And she says, "Well, you're hot stuff. You got like the best reviews in the show." And I looked at the reviews and I was just stunned. You know, you know, it was the Garden of Eden scene. She was doing the Gwen Borden role, and you know, I was her partner, and I started at the Muni, because it's outdoors, they had a tree um, made out of oil cloth that was uh, slanted. And it was like 40 foot tall. So they had me laying at the top and I had a goatee. And I must—I looked like Bob Fosse in that movie he did. And I just slithered down the tree and Lurine was laying there in the Chase lounge in the Garden of Eden and all the animals were dancing around. And then by the time I got to the bottom, they turn on these pink lights. So we do like really sexy dance together. And I get to do my big jumps and stuff that I that I'm known for across the stage. And it was very sexy. And then we uh another number we did was the Apache dance. And Laureen could sometimes be like over-enthusiastic energy-wise. <laughs> And one time during the rehearsal, she hit me, socked me so hard, you know, we're supposed to like be pretend hitting each other in the posh dance. And she hit me so hard. She like loosened one of my teeth and I thought she had broken my nose. So, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's like, just calm down. Okay. We'll, we'll make this work. So, <laughs> but I adored her and she, um, she died about 10 years ago, uh, of a brain aneurysm out of the blue. I was shocked uh, when I heard, but it was a terrific experience and they wanted it to go on afterwards. Uh, I think the Kinley players wanted it and there's another big stock theater in in Missouri, uh, the Kansas City Starlight, and they wanted it. So we would have gone on for a tour uh, for quite a while. And there was even talk about potentially getting it to Broadway, but Judy Kay had another job already booked. And that was the end of that.
0: So you were mentioning reviews a little bit there. Um, have you started to review uh, more since then? or?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, especially when I was doing Boobs and Musical, I didn't know how the critics would take the show at all, if they would like poo-poo it or... It was, it was a very sophisticated and clever show, so I thought maybe the critics might like it, but, you know, the the ones that are a little more picky, I guess, you know, like the New York Times and John Simon who wrote for, I um, it was New York Magazine who hated everything that he reviewed, basically. And well, wow, the next couple of days, the reviews are sensational. They were all either raves or extremely enthusiastic from London up to the New York Times and John Simon came about two weeks later and everybody was shaking in their boots because we were just waiting to be creamed by him. And he loved the show. I was like, oh, my God, what did I do right? <laughs> and i got great reviews for my choreography and i think it's like the first time i had like major critics comment on my choreography so that was that made me very happy
0: so while you have maintained your career as a choreographer you've also been working as a dancer once you became a choreographer what is it like to be working with another choreographer as a dancer do you sort of have that perspective in the back of
1: your mind yeah i mean you know, it's kind of once you're a dancer, you're always a dancer. So, if you're working with a choreographer, uh, another choreographer, you know just how to drop your own wants and needs, and you you surrender to the ideas of the other choreographer, and and uh, you give them your total respect. There's a special communication uh, between dancers. My my friend and someone you also know, Leroy Reims, we talk about that often when we get together, how there's just the special communication between dancers and this mutual respect. No matter what kind of dancing you did, or you know, if you're a chorus person or if you're a star, it doesn't make any difference. So few people get a job in a major ballet company because there's only a handful of jobs. So to achieve it, I, I may able lost my mind that, that I've had the career that I've had, you know, because there's so few jobs and I'm just eternally grateful for what I uh, was able to experience.
0: Yeah, and as a dancer in a company, what were your relationships like with the other members?
1: dancing and dance companies is very different than doing shows. Uh, In shows, there's like more of a friendly atmosphere and loose and you know, in shows, you go from show to show to show. When you're in a dance company, you're there. I mean, it's the big dance companies, you're employed for the year. So I was always friendly with the other dancers, but I also it occurred to me very young that you also had to keep sort of a a distance around you because if you got too friendly, it would work against you (laughs) because dancers sort of like to gossip a lot. (laughs) I noticed, you know, you kept your distance and you had your friends. I mean, you know, in Hamburg Ballet, I was friends with the photographer of the company, a couple of the other dancers I was really friendly with. and
0: So I would love to talk a little bit more about the Fiddler on the Roof revival. And maybe. so how did it first happen for you?
1: Um, well, they had already been out on the road pre-Broadway. I think the theater, I think they were in Washington, D.C. And I know that they were, I think the one right before was uh, there at the Fisher um, in Detroit. And they came in. I don't know if people were fired or they dropped out. It was the strangest atmosphere. Before I got there, um, and I am friends with a lot of of the fiddler people now. I asked, Mm -hmm. and I said, "I said, what's the deal with people always leaving the show?" And and my friend Stephen said that, "Well, they basically fire one person a month." No, I have never been anything where they fire one person Mm -hmm. a month. So, you know, whenever you're in a show that's involved with Jerome Robbins, basically, it was my experience. There was a whole lot of crazy going on. And there were two main things going on. One, that they kept firing people to keep everybody on their toes because you might be next, right? Yeah and because it was going there's a tour uh the tour that i mentioned before broadway and there's going to be like a year tour after broadway so they also wanted people who never did the show before except for of course herschel minority and a couple of the older folks who had been in the original company Uh, makes me laugh just thinking of five ish finkel he was so funny i don't know if you know who he was he was in the tv show picket fences but he was like uh oh my god he was such a character and um he used to come into the theater and he was always jovial and lots of fun and we bonded right away and became friends you know i'm in my 20s and i mean i guess they were like in the 60s and 70s uh these people but he would come into the theater and at 7 30 every night, right on a half hour, right in the, uh, on the dot, he would slam the door as hard as he could to his dressing room and said, The roll of Tevia has been stolen from me, but I'll go on anyway. Something like that. And you'd hear laughter all over the theater because he was being silly, right? And then see, sometimes he'd say, That Herschel Bernardi, he stowed the roll for me. <laughs> and one night, it was complete silence, we didn't hear anything. And Herschel got so upset that he ran over to, to Vibish's dressing room to see if he was okay. And he says, oh, yeah, I just forgot to do it. <laughs> so he is quite a character. And um, I love the people in the cast. You now, the older people in the cast, of course, are all gone now. And
0: I'd love to know a little more about Herschel Bernardi too and what it was like to work with him.
1: I really liked Herschel a lot. When I first joined the company, we were performing at the New York State Theater at Lincoln Center. And uh, when I first was rehearsing uh, at the State Theater in their rehearsal room. I, I guess I had a lunch break or something. And I went to, I think it was the Mayflower Hotel. They had like this nice restaurant downstairs. And Herschel and his, uh, new wife were in there having lunch and he saw me called me over and introduced me to his wife and he said something to me in Hebrew well I had just danced in Israel so I knew some Hebrew so I spoke back to him in Hebrew so uh, he just loved me from then on and of uh, I'm not a Jewish but he felt that I was and I never corrected him and I mean, I might as well be Jewish because, like, half the roles I've played have been have been Jewish.
0: I would love to ask about the secret in that production of the bottle dancing. What it was like to do the bottle dance?
1: Balance the bottles on their hats. A lot of productions have the bottles; there's Velcro on the bottoms of the, the bottom of the of the bottles and on the top of the hat. So when you stick it on, the Velcro keeps the bottle on, and for like real dancer dancers they consider that cheating you know once in a while a bottle would fall off
0: (laughs) yeah so i'd love to ask about a few more of the movies the movies that you did as a dancer and as a choreographer Uh so you did these uh treehouse trolls specials as a choreographer (laughs) so i would love to know more about those
1: (laughs) Uh oh my god that was such a fluke I became friends with Alexander Cohen. So he says, well, I think you should meet my son, Chris Cohen, who had his own um, TV production and and video company. And Chris and I also really hit it off. So Chris and his partner would produce a lot of things. And I can't remember if I was had done my exercise video with them Or before or after but he called me up and i was in california because i had so much going on then i i had a hit record that was out for two years where i I traveled all over the world and did that Had all these projects going on he says well i'm doing i'm doing um these two children's musicals he says, don't laugh when I tell you the name. It's like, okay, hit me. And he said, it's called the Treehouse Trolls. One's called the Birthday Party or something. And I, forget, I think the other one's Forest, the fun and wonder. And he said, I need to ask you two questions. And I said, what's that? And he said, number one, would you choreograph both of them? And I said, yes. And he says, well, I need to ask you a favor. <laughs> and one of them, one of the lead characters is, Donald the donkey. And he has his own song and dance. And he said, we'd love for you to do it. If you'd consider doing it, he says, you know, you got to be dressed up like a donkey and you have a tail and they're going to play pin the tail on the donkey on you. And I said, sure, let's do it. So I had, I had a blast doing those and Chris Cohen and his company were just top-notch professionals and very respectful and they had they hired a casting director i really didn't have anything to do with the casting i just worked with the people they gave me and one of the people um was rachel harris the tv and movie star and it was her. it was their first job they were uh produced to be released around christmas time you know so it would be like a holiday item people could buy And that thing sold out in two weeks and they had printed a lot of copies. So they're really happy. They made a big profit from that. And
0: What is it like to be choreographing for the small screen? Because I know you were saying you like to work bigger.
1: Yes. On stage I do. Because of like having worked on uh, all my children and, uh, I've also had an acting career going on my entire life. So. Because of understanding camera from all my children and other things that I had danced on, I, I know how to to choreograph for a small combined space. And I understand camera angles um, very early on. So um, you know, the, the director will tell you your parameters basically and give you an idea of how much space you have to work with and then Really, it's sort of up to the director and and the director of photography to figure out how they're going to film that. And you'll have to, you you have to make like a lot of corrections on the spot if something is too big or, you know, it's different. It's stop and start. So it's good if something messes up, you can do it again.
0: So you mentioned this hit single that you had. And I would love to ask you about Uh that crank it up so how did that first happen
1: for you another one of my stories Uh, i had gotten interest in recording after um i did fiddler i stayed in los angeles for a year and during that period of time i got booked on a soap opera called capital it was about washington dc i think it was on for like five years i had a wonderful Uh, Cass had had Yvonne DiCarlo, Connie Towers, Constance Towers, who was also a Broadway star, and those are fun ladies. So I had a great time working on that. But I also got a job um, singing and dancing at one of the clubs there. And it really gave me, and I would open for recording stars. Laurie Brannigan who sang the song Gloria. Oh. Uh the Weather Girls who sang It's Raining Men. All these people I would divine the drag queen who had a record. I don't know if he's considered a drag queen, but a female impersonator. Um but anyway, I was thinking, you know, I could do that. So I started working towards that. And I think about two years later I recorded my first record that was called It Takes Two to Tango and it played around like the clubs in New York City and I always like wanted to get a record contract and and do it for real and then I met a um, friend of mine uh, big time uh, record producer his name is Corey Wade and he was the lead producer for TK Records who turned out all these huge disco hits back in, in the day and They had artists like Peter Brown and Casey and the Sunshine Band. And he produced all those records. I mean, it was amazing. So he says, well, I want to make a a comeback in the 90s. And he said, I want to re-record one of Peter Brown's songs. It's called Crank It Up. He says, listen to it and um, see if you like it, if you want to do it. So I did. And I was like thrilled, you know. That I was going to have like a a real record, and you know, the small record company. And he says, "Well," he said, "You know, I want to make it more current." So he says, "He says, I know you're also a songwriter. I want you to write a new verse or two, which I did, and I recorded those. They're in the song." And um, back in those days, I don't know if they have this now, but they would release um, a dance record in a region. A region would be like the northeastern region and or the south or different places. So they would release them in different regions, sort of like test it to see if the song was gonna take off. And it did, I, I went to number two on the main chart in San Francisco and all over, and I was playing on the radio in Florida and it just kept going. So. All of a sudden I was like out playing all these clubs and ended up going to Europe and Australia and Hawaii. It's kind of weird to hear myself on the radio in Hawaii. It's like the last place I would think of hearing myself on the radio, but um, it's a great time. The record company, the record industry is known to be sleazy because they basically don't pay you know, yeah. and it must've been maybe five years later or so I ran into Patty LaBelle who, oh. <clears throat> when you're on like uh, radio stations, they have you do what's called record promotions and they'll put you in a the theater. I think we were at the, the Hollywood Palladium uh, in Los Angeles. And they had all these recording artists, um, Natalie Cole, who I loved, and Patti LaBelle and MC Hammer. I mean, all these characters. And uh, so I met her. So anyway, I saw her like five years later and she says, hi, sweetheart, how are you? She's oh. She says, did you ever do another record after that? crank it up? And I said, no, she's well, why not? You know, she just gave me like attitude, you know, why not? And I said, I said, Patty, I've never, I've never got paid for my record. And she says, I never not get paid for my records either. She says, you do shows, don't you? And I said, I said, yeah, pay, sweetheart. Do another record. <laughs> and did you enjoy
0: doing these sort of singing gigs just as much as you would dancing or?
1: Yeah, it was completely different. Uh, it's yeah. a lot of responsibility because it's just you up there on the stage. So if anything goes wrong, I mean, you have egg on your face and when you have a dance song a lot of times you're playing in these big dance clubs and the it's the dj is in like usually in charge of both the lights and the sound if they're drunk or whatever they would mess up things and you're just dying you know trying to get through the first Thirty seconds, wondering if the lights are going to go on, if he's going to get this. because you sang to the track, so after I had enough of, had had enough of them messed up. Another recording artist said, "Lawrence, sing with your record, just in case they don't turn on your mic. The audience is going to hear your voice anyway." So, I mean, the recording industry—they call a doubling you actually do the and then you're singing the second time so the sound is richer on the recording so I mean that's basically what you're doing in the, the club you're 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 um, singing to your actual recording but when you have a mic and it's actually working the sound is huge so I mean it's a win-win so if they mess up you don't have egg on your face <laughs> the best sound I ever had was a I sang at Studio 54 when it was still the disco. Wow. And I was invited to do some a benefit and Eddie Murphy was on it and Susan Lucci. And I came out with uh, one girl and I, I sang a number. It was a different song, but I sang at Studio 54. They had the most expensive mic oh <laughs> I've goodness. ever done in my life. Just boomed uh through the entire place it was it was crazy good (laughs) yeah yeah. but you know you're at other people's mercy I guess is is what I'm saying you know how good their equipment is and are they going to mess up you've got the responsibility because the audience has heard your record on the radio and they want to hear it exactly sound the same way so it's like you know if these guys are going to mess it up I'm going to give them what they they came for. So
0: and another thing that I believe came of your singing was your friendship with Madeline Kahn. Uh,
1: no, actually, I met oh. Madeline Kahn on did another one on CBS that starred Felicia Rashad. And, and I was going in my dressing room and Madeline Kahn was walking down the hall at the same time. We just started talking. Mm-hmm. TV so. people mostly don't come from Broadway. So when you meet a night like another Broadway theater person you just like chatted up right and we headed off and I mean that's when my friendship started with her and I told her that as a kid two by two was playing on Broadway and I wrote her a fan letter I don't know if I ever did that with anybody else but I love that the golden Rams song she sang in two by two that she said, "What did I respond? I said, yeah, you sent me back a headshot and signed it. It was very sweet. She says, Oh, you're so lucky. I wouldn't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I understand that because like when people will like email me or whatever people I don't own, ask for like a, a, a picture and autograph, I'll mail them a picture, but I won't sign my name because there's so much fraud.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, even on my um, my exercise DVD, it's signed in the back, Lawrence Lorette's, and the the graphic artist wrote that I didn't. So, um, you have to protect yourself in this business.
0: Another one of the movies that you did, speaking of movies, which we were earlier, was Across the Universe with Julie Taymor. Oh, the- my
1: God. Yes. You're picking all the Broadway kind of things, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. that was terrific experience again i was a singer on it um i know most people think of me as a dancer but i've spent a lot of my career as a singer a dancer an actor so you know a lot of people call themselves singer dancers and actors but i really am i've done all three consistently my entire life i remember going to the I, i was hired and then i remember going to the fitting it's down in the west 30s and i remember going back in the costume room and there are like 50 billion costumes in there there's so i've never seen so many costumes going for a fitting and i was like wow this is going to be one big production and it was the main scene that i'm in is in the title song across the universe and we recorded it but then she julie played it back In slow mo. So I'm like, nothing's gonna change my world. That's how it sounds. And I'm a cop in a protest scene. And she was a doll to work with. I just loved her. She was so supportive and just sweet and kind. And you just felt the creative energy jumping off of her. However, in that scene, There were so many people in that scene. There was like a thousand people because it was supposed to be a mob. And I don't know why they hired some of these people from the instructions to kind of like push back at the cops a little bit. And some of these idiots who'd never been on a set before were like really punching us. They broke my glasses, which you appreciate wearing glasses. And they ripped like the buttons off my police uniform. It's like, hey, slow down, guys. We're pretending don't do that again on the next take. I mean, it was crazy. But whatever, it was a great experience. And I noticed when we, after the movie uh, had played, it didn't do that well at the box office, but it's done gangbusters in rentals afterwards. And it was number one for a long time in best-selling DVD or whatever they were selling at the time. So I knew like one of the dancers who worked on it and one of the other actors and when the residuals came they were like kind of really small for a movie that made so much money so finally i called our union screen actors guild and i said you know what's up with such small uh, residuals the movie did so well and she said so let me look he says oh well i can tell you there were 900 day players on this movie and they divide up the money between the different actors. You know, usually in the cast of a major movie, there's usually like a hundred, roughly, in that area. So, the woman at SAC said to me, "You're sharing your money with all those people, so nobody's making great residuals." It's like, oh, thank you for explaining. It's it's a great memory. I have a I have a movie poster of it hanging in my apartment. I liked it that much. The experience.
0: So something that you did do that might not stand out that much to you in terms of your career, but I would be curious about is you were a stand-in on the movie Stag, and I would love to know what that is like to do.
1: I read for them for a role, which I did, playing a police officer. I think I worked maybe like, I worked like four or five days, and I became friendly with the producer, he says, would you like to keep working on the project? Because the money was <laughs> really good. And I said, doing what? And he says, why well, we need a stand-in for one of the characters? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you, you basically stand there to do lighting, you know. And it was okay. I made my health insurance and everything. So yeah. it's not exciting work, but I enjoyed it.
0: So you have done so many sort of different kinds of things during your career, as you were mentioning, actor, singer, dancer, director, producer, songwriter. So is there an avenue of artistic expression that you would still want to explore?
1: Well, I'm going to take Canada next year. We're in talks. We're doing an all-new production of, of Boobs and Musical. Uh-huh. The show itself is sort of topical. Um, it'll have like kind of like current event situations you know it had a couple of them being updated by uh the people in canada and i'm going <clears throat> there to direct and, and choreograph it and there's chatter about uh several other cities that might be going to after that so uh-huh. i'm excited about that and you know i take what comes along sort of and decide if i want to do it and i'm still dancing some here and there yeah you know, like in the cheetah mindset, I just like kind of keep going. It's like as, as long as I can. I danced in um, this TV special called Night of Too Many Stars. It had all these really big stars in it. And it was at the Beacon Theater. It was uh, sort of like a telethon to raise money for autism. And the number that I w- was hired for was the song Call Me Maybe. Remember that song? Carly Ray Jepsen. And so they did it like a Saturday night live skit. However, she did sing the entire song. And uh, so they hired, uh, my agent got me this job. They hired three male dancers and three female dancers. And they used me as as the lead dancer. So what was so funny about it is that she would sing the first part of the song. And he walked out out of the stage and the audience just like screamed. That audience at that theater that night was so electric.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And um it was it was like a night back on Broadway. It was uh really exciting. The joke of it was is that um, Harley Ray came out and sang the song and her band was on stage too. So you heard this um deep bass on the stage and it like went through your body, it was very exciting, and she had Three young girls, you know, like 18-year-old dancers, gorgeous girls, doing her backup with her and all that. So then Harvey comes
0: that's um Harvey Ka
1: comes out like a third way into the number and stares her down and comes down center stage and he starts repeating the dialogue of the song, the next verse, like a mafia guy. So the audience was laughing. Then we come out and they have us dressed like wise guys, you know, his yeah. his thugs. And we're like, like barely dancing and acting top. The audience was screaming, laughing. Now I have no idea where they're laughing. It didn't occur to me that it was funny. Mm-hmm. So that was the number. And Jon Stewart was the host and the three guys walked off stage and he's, oh my God, you guys are so funny. And he slapped me on the back and it's like, oh, they're laughing at us. I had like no idea. But it was really funny, the juxtaposition of Carly Ray being like sweet and bouncy and him being like this mafia tough guy. And then the number closed out at the end where we you know, all the dancers together with with the two stars and I was front and center and it was a really fun uh, event.
0: Yeah.
1: And then um, a couple years ago, I got hired to open the Macy's Parade yes. uh, in the opening number. Um, this is with Whoopi Goldberg and uh, Harry Connick Jr. and several people. And I played the cab driver. And on the very first shot you see, and then I think it goes to Harry Connick and then it comes back to me where the back door of my cab opens and clowns jump in the cab and I give them kind of a dirty look and take off and, and, um, it was pretty cool.
0: Yeah.
1: I really enjoyed doing that. My phone like blew up because, you know, it plays like, like, you know, one hour later in each region. So for like Um, three hours, my phone didn't stop ringing or text. And that was really fun.
0: And so you mentioned that doing this with Carly Ray Jepsen and Harvey Kaito was like working on SNL. Uh-huh. But you also actually have have danced on Saturday Night Live. So I No,
1: I acted
0: with Nathan Lane, I believe, as the host.
1: With Nathan Lane, yes.
0: I I would love to know more about what that sort of experience is like.
1: I mean basically it's like any other TV show, except that it's live. Yeah. So and everything's just kind of slapped together. <laughs> You know, you have like one rehearsal, but then right before you go on stage to perform it live on TV, they'll make like a lot of changes. So it's like a lot of these kind of shows like that, you sort of barely know what you're doing. So you really have to depend on your own experience to to make it work. It was really fun. I was with the two, they had the cheerleader couple on Saturday Night Live way back then it was Will Ferrell. And I think Sherry O'Terry, And I was in a, in a scene um, playing an EMS uh, paramedic because Will Farrell was on the stretch or something and he was like talking to me. And it, it was really funny. I can't remember if Nathan walked through in that scene also. I haven't seen it in a decade, so I don't know. But And then I also worked on Saturday Night Live about uh, two years ago they had they hired a, a group of, of Broadway singers to do something and we're in a church somewhere singing this number the number was cut but it's always fun they're really nice there I like working there
0: so we haven't yet had a full discussion of boobs the musical but I would love to have <laughs> so uh, so for those who don't know can you tell us a little bit about what boobs is about
1: I won't go into too much detail but the songs, the the show is based on, I believe we used 23 or 25 of the songs of Ruth Wallace, who was, um, at the time, was a, a well-known uh, songwriter singer in the 50s and 60s. She was um, a pioneer. She was the first woman to ever have her own record company. She started her own record company. And, I think it came out of need because her songs are slightly naughty, um, about half of them. By today's standard, they're like wonder bread. I mean, they're so innocent. Like one of her best known songs was uh, the dingy song. And it goes like, he's got the cutest little dingy in the Navy. And everybody knows that it's so, something like that. It's, those aren't the right words. They were suggestive, you know,
0: yeah.
1: (laughs) But then she had all this other material, like "All the Clowns" is just—it's a gorgeous ballad in the show. And so my agent at the time was Mitch Douglas uh, at ICM, and um, Ruth Wallace called him about representing a musical she had written. She had written several. And he says, she said, I'm an old lady living in Connecticut. You know, she was explaining who she was. And he says, I know who you are. And she, or who you are. And Mitch sang the dinghy song back to her. And she said, she told me later on, she said, I almost fell over dead. (laughs) That anybody even remembered it. And he told her the story about how he had her records as a kid growing up in kentucky so uh he took her on as a client and he hired two writers one was a friend of mine to write a script around it um it was also kind of done like in a saturday night live kind of most of the situations were very very funny so that's how that's how it was put together and they came to me and asked me if i was interested in being involved with it and i a few meetings, and I agreed to to do a workshop of it. I mean, we had amazing talent at the workshop. We had J. Robert Spencer, uh, who went on to do uh, Jersey Boys as one of the the four stars, and is a Tony nominee for uh, Next to Normal. Uh, and Jenny Lynn Suckling, now his wife, Jenny Spencer actually loved to show Fosse for two weeks to come and do the workshop. And uh, Christy Cates, who people know from Wicked. And, you know, it was a fantastic cast. And we did it on a shoestring budget. And it it turned out great. The audiences loved it. And we got people interested in it. And right after that, the Um, first person uh, who, like, wanted to put in real money to move it to the next step, which was off Broadway, came in and then 9-11. Oh. So just everything stopped pretty much like during the pandemic now, 9-11 did that to theater. Our people had cold feet about investing in theater and tourists weren't coming to New York. So it was basically kind of on hold for a year, but we kept working on it and thankfully the original investor always left us money so it always gave us like a foundation and then we went on to raise enough money to open at the triad theater um it had the same cast as the workshop except for bobby spencer loved to do something else i don't remember and i hired a wonderful actor robert hunt and the show was a a great success i mean no it's a very tough grind off broadway because you're playing basically in a lot of the smaller theaters 200 seats. So <laughs> to make enough money to keep running, it's like a day to day process. And I never worked so hard in my life. I was so exhausted after doing that. It ran for almost a year. Uh, I was just, I was fried after a year of that. And um, after the triad had transferred, I, I wanted it more down in the theater district. So, we transferred it to a theater called um Dylan's Reprise Room. It was like a restaurant, but they had a big theater in the back, and it ran there for a few more months and then it went to New Orleans and and that production was a blast. I had so much fun. It was extended three times and it would have kept on running, but again the star had to leave to do another production. And she was her name is Becky Allen. She was a big draw in uh, New Orleans, and I know she helped the ticket sales. And then I went to Wichita, Kansas, of all places, you know, the religious <laughs> Bible Belt. And since then, it's played in New Zealand, and it's it has started this international route. I have interest um, in other foreign countries as well, so. It's an exciting new journey, you know, just when you think you, have you know, moved on and things, you know, it comes back again. And things have always had a tendency to do that in my life. And I'm sure most people's lives, you think you're finished with one thing and then it, it returns again, much to your surprise and delight.
0: Yeah. And how did you sort of match your choreography to the suggestiveness of the songs?
1: Have you seen the videos?
0: No, are they? I don't think I have, but I would love to. Oh,
1: they're on YouTube. Pete's every night. The dingy song is with our second girl, um, Katie Pease, who replaced the the first girl Rebecca, and Clive Alves, who was who was absolutely terrific in um, in the number. You have to watch it. Uh, it's innocent. She comes out dressed as Shirley Temple and he is a tap dancing sailor that he's singing about, you know, Dave's the nickname is Dave's Dingy. You get the idea when you want to be funny. And then he's, he's dressed, he has a boat, he has a sailor cap on his tap shoes and a boat with no shirt. And he rams the boat in to Shirley Temple, you know, mistakenly at the end of the number and just listen mister, this isn't an iceberg. And then they finished the number.
0: So I want to ask, because you were doing choreography and producing, what was it like to have those sort of dual roles?
1: I don't think I'd want to do it again. I mean, that's all I can say. <laughs> I may never say never, but Um, In that particular situation, I think the situations going forwards, I have a better idea of how to handle it all. I think I would be okay with it. So
0: we talked about last time, your favorite venues to work in as a dancer. So I'd be curious to know your favorite venues as a choreographer too.
1: I mean, I I really loved choreographing at the Dorothy Chandler Chandler Theater downtown, uh, Los Angeles, the music center. Uh, a lot of people know that theater because it was the home of the Academy Awards for, for years and years and years and years. And um you know, it's it, it's a theater like the Metropolitan Opera. It's very nice and very grand, and a lot of space on stage. You know, I, I I like to move, you know, I like to have a lot of space to move in. I mean, I danced in, like when I had my dance company um, dance celebration. We did a a gig down at NYU and that theater was so small. It's like, I felt like I was jumping on top of myself. (laughs) I I like having the space to move.
0: I would like to ask you about the the last dragon, which you choreographed.
1: Oh yes, that was fun. It was the first thing, uh, first film (laughs) that I choreographed and it was for uh, Motown Records and um, TriStar Pictures. And it's kind of a silly film, but it's a huge cult classic now. Like when people meet you that are fans of of The Last Dragon, you're like a god to them. And it's like, oh, like, this is so bizarre because it's like so out of my realm of reality to think about that. But it had recording stories from Motown and the main choreographer on it was Lester Wilson who was one of the lead choreographers from Motown for like all their TV specials, but he choreographed Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta. I mean, I loved him. He was so funny. And they kind of like assign you numbers to do. And I, I was assigned a couple of numbers and had a blast. And it was around the time it was when I was doing Broadway Showstoppers because after I did Showstoppers, we went to other cities, like after the first Broadway Showstoppers, I took Jerry Mitchell and Lisa Ms and a couple of other dancers. and We went to Philadelphia. And, you know, somehow I connected with Bauschalum Sunglasses, where I would do the same type of shows, but I would do like popular songs like Beach Boys or something. And that's where Jump came from. Oh, they came from one of those shows and we had sunglasses on, but that's all we really had to do about their product, uh, with their product. So anyway, I pulled a lot of those dancers. In fact, all of my dancers came out of the shows because I knew they were good dancers and we didn't have much rehearsal time. So this is where this, this story gets a little bit funny. So Barry Gordy, the famous, You know, Motown genius, whatever. He says he's going to be my best friend doing this, probably because he wants to be sure he can control me to doing exactly what he wants. So, these old rehearsal studios, Fosse used to rehearse in one, and they were up on like One was on 8th Avenue and one was on Broadway. It was on like 56th Street. And you see everybody there. Cheetah would be there. and So anyway, I was up there rehearsing with this singer uh, from uh, Motown. She was the only white artist on the label. And she had a very big hit with a song called I've Never Been to Me. That they used in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And I think it went to number one uh, here for several weeks. but it was number one in Australia for months, and and in Europe. And she could not dance at all. She could barely move. She was just so stiff. So it's like, okay, well, I may have to choreograph my girls around her. And the song was called Fire, and she's like singing about her imagined love life or whatever. I mean, it was you know, it was a sexy number. So I had the girls like. Moving very beautifully because they were dressed like kind of like Greek goddesses, I guess, dancing around her in like chiffon and stuff. And she was too, and she's hanging on to this pillow pillar in the song. It's like, anyway. So I said, Well, you just hang on to the pillar <laughs> and I'll move the dancing girls around you. And, and but then she said, Well, I want to dance too. I learned very quickly how to deal with somebody on camera and dance as I gave her like hand movements where she'd like sway and stuff. And I would have the dancers do it at the same time. So the camera angle was like really high on her body. So you thought she was doing all the same dance steps where when they pull back, you know, you see the dancers like doing all this really like hard choreography. And then you go in close on all of them together. And you think that she's doing it too, because she's just doing the same hand hand movements with with the rest of them, which are easy. So, I mean, it's a, a good way to sort of like trick the audience and do your job and make everybody happy. I always remember Lester Wilson saying to me during the process, he says, the last dragon, they should retitle it the last drag on because it took so long to film. And then, so Barry Gardner came into that rehearsal. He said, oh, oh, I love what you're doing, kid. You're great. Dude. Don't change anything. So the next day on the set, some of like the directors, they have on film and TV on some of these things. I don't know what they're thinking. I mean, they don't have a concept that they're shooting a musical film. They have this commercial director who, he did these commercials called, it was a chain in New York called Crazy Eddie's. And they're the craziest commercials you ever saw. The the lead guy would scream, it's Crazy Eddie and our prices are insane. And that's what this guy was known for directing. But now he's like directing this Motown musical and he had no idea what he was doing. And he wasn't what I would call a classy person uh, versed in the arts. So he says, oh, hey, Lawrence, I like the choreography, but can't you like maybe make him bump and grind a little? And I just, I I just couldn't. I I tried to accommodate him a little bit. And I called up Barry Gordy, and I said, this is, this is what he's asked me to do on set. And I said, I don't know what to do because you tell me not to change anything. He's telling me to do this and basically what I'd originally choreographed for this number. Yeah. Yeah. Show business is crazy, Charles.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just
1: when you think everything is like of the highest caliber, you know, working in a movie or you're working on Broadway. You know, things I've done in Summerstock were more professional than some of the things that you think are like the most professional. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. And that that's a great it's story. A
1: Crazy business. It is a business. It's about, you know, on one side of the on the producer side, they're looking at dollars and cents. And I, I understand that having produced myself.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's a business.
0: Yes, yeah. And so speaking of your acting career, which we talked about a little Uh bit, you did these two movies recently, you did Love and Kill Mary and The Pitch, so I'd be curious to know what it was like acting on screen in these two, two recent projects.
1: Yeah, I really enjoyed both of them. Um, The Pitch is a short film, so it's only like 11 minutes long, and... There are three characters in it. Uh, This guy, one character is playing like one of these um, holy roller uh, TV talk show ministers and he's just talking mumbo jumbo. So we're supposed to be at a hotel um, in his audience and he pulls me out of the audience. I'm playing an accountant from the Midwest. And he keeps trying to say, oh, you need to liven up. And he's like pulling the shirt out of my pants and rolling up my pant legs. And says, you need to loosen up and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just not having anything to do with it. And, you know, I basically tell him that he, I think he's a little bit crazy. And I walk away and he pulls me back. And at the end, he like gets me into like, I'm dressed up as like some Hawaiian god and he's in a Hawaiian t-shirt, and we're like dancing, and that's the end of the film. It's very cute. Um, Loving Canary is a is a full-length comedy feature, and it's, it's a very good film. We had a New York premiere of it um, right before the pandemic hit. It's won over 40 major film festival awards. And it's um, going to be presented at the the film market in in Cannes right before the film festival coming up. So hopefully we'll see it on Netflix or someplace soon. It's yeah really funny comedy, and I'm I'm playing a cop, and I'm a mess a mess up cop like Barney Fife on the Andy Griffith show. I like, I mess everything up. And it's really funny. I kind of had his character a little bit in the back of my mind when I was filming. The film is terrific, so I hope it does really well. Um, I had a great time doing it. and I made quite a few friends from that as well. Yeah. You pick up people here and there as you go along, you know, <laughs> different things you do. And thank God for Facebook, because I reconnected with all my Fiddler people through Facebook, oh. basically. Yeah.
0: And... Um- people might not know you have a Facebook page for Fontaine and Norea on Broadway that you run, which yes. everyone should, should go and look at. So, and I have
1: a boobs and musical page too. <laughs> okay.
0: So no one has uh, talked yet on this podcast about dancers over 40. So I'd love to ask you since you are a board member and a legacy award honoree to talk a little bit about them and what they do and all of that.
1: I'd be be happy to. I just want to say, Charles, you are such an entertaining, intelligent host. Oh, thank you. And it's a pleasure to talk to you because you know what you're talking about. You're so um, well-versed. Thank you. That means. Um, And leading into that, um, I did the trivia night with you.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And that was so well-produced and it was a lot of fun, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, I had a lot
1: of fun. So it was, it was um, in association with Dancers Over 40. Dancers Over 40 is a not-for-profit organization, and um, it's basically to support dancers who are over 40, but it's, and friends, so you don't have to be a really a dancer or over 40 to join as you know charles because you're a member at the old age ripe old age of 13 and we're happy to have you there but it's an organization you know to to support dancers you know after 40 because basically most dancers stop dancing by the time they hit 40 and it's a support it's sort of a support group because you get to see other dancers and friends compare stories and um it's just a really great organization i think one of the the main points about dancers over 40 is that it's to preserve uh dance history most of the people dancers over 40 have been in like a zillion broadway shows like um james Diabas and and Mary Jane Houdina, and Eileen Casey, and all of these people, we've all, done, almost all the members have done all these Broadway shows, so it's such a rich history, and then the organization does all these special shows, like they did a West Side Story reunion, and we had over a dozen original cast members, Cheetah Rivera, and and all of these people, it was a fantastic show. We did one for dancing, and we'll also do um, ones featuring featuring choreographers like Joe Layton. Uh, I helped produce one about Ruth Page because oh. of my fondness for her. And we brought all these dancers in who are like in her original company in Chicago. It's very interesting. And they filmed this, so it's preserved. And it goes to uh, the Jerome Robbins collection. There he is again, Jerome Robbins collection at uh, Lincoln Center. So it's it's preserving, and these stories, you know, are coming out of the horses' mouths. There are people who work for these choreographers who are in these shows on Broadway. And, you know, once it's lost, it's lost. And, you know, it doesn't always end up in a book. But to hear the, the real person who was there telling the story is just, it's amazing.
0: So I would love to ask about another benefit that you produced that was not for Dancers Over 40, but it was the Guild of Artists Benefit with Beverly Sills.
1: The American Guild of Musical Artists, uh, much like uh, Screen Actors Guild, after uh, um, a actors equity uh the american guild of musical Artists represents uh basically opera and ballet companies around the united states and you know it's not as wealthy as you know some of these other unions because they're not you know collecting the money that screen actors guild does but um when they hit their 50th Uh, anniversary they wanted to do a total blowout party and invite all these huge opera stars to perform and that was act one and then act two was going to be all dancing and they had hired Donald Sadler as the director and I believe producer um, of the event but about three weeks before, um, they started like making calls to different artists, you know, about the show. Cause coming up and it was at the New York State Theater and they'd invested a lot of money in putting the show up. And, you know, they wanted to earn some money uh, back for the, for the union's pension fund. So as they called people, they found out the little work had been done and they were like shocked. And they all knew, like, my experiences of, like, putting up these, these big musical events in Broadway houses. So the the president of the union and the the guy who was in charge of the dance division said, can you come in, in to the office and see us today? It's an emergency. <laughs> and are you free for the next three weeks? And I said, no. Yeah, so it's like, I wonder what they want. And they explained that very little work had been done and it's gonna be a disaster. Can you come in and save us? So I was happy to do it. You know, I was on their board of governors there for 18 years and I was friendly with all those people. And I love opera singers and I love dancers. So I took the job and just day one I worked like a dog for three weeks. And you know, we had every major ballet company in the United States. We had the New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, Alvin Ailey Company, uh, Martha Graham, we had San Francisco Ballet, Chicago Ballet, Dallas Ballet, Boston Ballet. You know, they would do like a shorter piece. Yeah. But Alex Dubay was head of the dance department and a dear friend. And Alex said, you know, Lawrence, we're doing something that will never happen again. And it's like, yeah, you're right. This is a good perspective. And it never has, but it was an incredible evening. The first challenge I had was that they had approached um, Beverly Sills, who was head of the New York City Opera at the time, and Peter Martins, who become the director of the New York City Ballet after Balanchine had passed. And I didn't know uh, Beverly, but I did know Peter Martins quite well. So Alex DeBay looked at me in the office. He says, we we need to to commit them as a host in order to build the rest of the show. And I said, you're right. So he said, do you have any ideas? Don't you know Peter from when you're at the school? And I said, yes, I can call him up. So I called him up the State Theater and I I told him what I wanted him to do. And he said, well, is anything else involved? And I said, yes, I, I have this idea. Um, and it was already suggested by Del settler to open the second act with um, a section from Deanna Waltz, Balanchine's you know, couple. but The whole New York City Ballet is also out there in waltzing in this big number. And I said, I had this idea of, I knew this was not going to go over well. I had this idea of of, of you and Beverly Sills waltzing just across the stage and off to open the second act. And the reason I had this idea was because of Beverly Sills because I met her the day before and she was being like cagey with me if she was gonna do it or not. And I said, I know how to, I know how to, I always knew how to deal with people as as a, a producer, choreographer whatever, director. And I said to her, well, I said, well, what would make you really wanna do this event? She said, I've always dreamt about dancing with Peter Martins. So just like basically saying, if you don't, if you don't pull this off, I'm not doing it. So that's why I went to Peter and I, when I told Peter, it was sort of like dead silence on the other side of the telephone. I was like, oh, well, you know, this is what I expected. And I said, Peter, if you do this for me, I'll do you any favor if you ever want. Just call me, but you have to do it for me. And he said, well, how much rehearsal is this gonna take? And I said, well, very little, I said, just, you know, bring your ballet slippers and you'll. I'll start you in one side of the state and you'll waltz off the other. And he says, well, let me think about it. Call me tomorrow. So I probably had a very sleepless night that night, I guess. And so I called him at the state there. And he said, he says, look, Lawrence, he said, if I really don't have to rehearse, I'll do it. He says, would you meet me like for 15 minutes and show me what to do before? And I said, "Yes, I'd be happy to do that." So, you know, it was just all put together. And then right before they went on stage, I talked to them, and she was thrilled that she was dancing with the Prince of the New York City Ballet, you know, now the director. And so then I got on the telephone. I said, "I would call it San Francisco Ballet. We're doing this." Fantastic gala, at Lincoln Center, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. And I explained the whole thing, and I said, and Peter Martins and Beverly Sills are a host, and then everybody wanted to be in the show. So that's how I that's how I produced it. You so, have to build, yeah, you know, yeah, for an event like that. So going back to Alec, uh, Alexander Cohen, this you know this had full page ads in the New York Times and everything was a very big event. So I ran into Alex Cohen on the street, and he said. He produced these shows called Night of Night of Night of hundred stars, I think, with all Broadway stars. So he says, he says, I, he said, I see you doing a big event up at Lincoln Center. He says, How many people do you have on stage? And I said, 300. And he's he said, um, I guess you're doing the the night of three hundred divas. And I said, Yes, you're correct. <laughs> I loved him. He was he was a very charming man, Alex. Yeah.
0: So bringing our interview up to the present day, I would love to ask yes. what you've been doing during quarantine to maintain Arden, all of that.
1: Uh, you know, base, things basically just stopped for a year. Um, boobs is always like sort of going on and we knew it was going to happen at some point. So I would I continue to have those conversations and I, uh, a friend of mine is a Director and writer in uh, California, and he offered me uh, sort of like online acting job to do. Um, where I would do like like for Wednesday, like, i it. it was it's improv, which um, I enjoyed doing. So you know I had that to do, and you know did my ballet bars at home and just try to keep myself side psychologically going the whole time.
0: But the very last question I want to ask you is after such a legendary career that you've had and still have, I would love to ask what advice you would want to give to someone just starting out.
1: Be humble. Be ready. Always, number one, believe in yourself. Always uh, listen to your own intuition. It will never guide you wrong. If you're put in a situation and it doesn't feel right to you, there's a reason
0: yeah
1: things that are good in your career they always feel good they feel easy um sort of like half the jobs i did i worked very hard for it to get and other ones just came to me so things aren't always the way you know they don't always happen the way you traditionally think you know they're going to happen like you know i'm going to audition for this and i get a job you know, things don't always happen that way. Sometimes they, they'll just come in from left field. So be open to any opportunity, be grateful, uh, be positive in the work situation. Mm-hmm. And anything that's yours is coming to you. You can't not have it happen, you know. It's it's mm-hmm. going to be there for you. And so. in your mind, you sometimes think, "Oh, like, I'm struggling to get here or there. But if something's meant for you, it's going to be there for you.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to talk to you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Charles. Listeners,
0: thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by the always hilarious Jason Grah. He has made memorable appearances on The Great White Way in Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up, Stardust, Falsettos, and A Grand Night For Singing. He starred in the off-Broadway hits Forever Plaid and Hello Mother, Hello Father, and in Just So, Snoopy, Olympus On My Mind, Inventing Mary Martin and A Funny Thing happened on the way to the Forum around New York City. On screen, you may remember him from his appearances on shows like Frasier, Friends, Rude Awakening, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Six Feet Under, Caroline in the City, China Beach, and more. His very popular cabaret shows include Four Nine and a Half Shades of Gras, Gras Anatomy, Coup de Gras, and The Prince and the Showboy alongside Faith Prince. So I hope you'll remember to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.